Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Paul, the prosecutor, has brought charges against all mankind. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul brought an indictment against those who were blatantly immoral. He brought charges against the insidious self-righteous and the outwardly religious. What Paul concludes is spiritually devastating. From a spiritual standpoint, human beings are lost in their trespass, in their sin. All stand condemned and are under the wrath and judgment of God. And so apart from God's redeeming grace, apart from the reality of Jesus, the truth and the love and the sacrifice that's in Jesus, we are dead in our sin, completely without eternal hope. And so at the end of chapter 2, in verses 17 through 29, Paul demonstrates that even the most religious person on the whole planet Earth could never stand before God apart from Christ. Even the Jew, with the claims of heritage and good deeds... And the holy law is lost in sin. And so Paul is going to take out his Holy Spirit hammer. And he's going to have carefully crafted nails. And he is going to use those nails to hammer shut the coffin of self-righteousness and religiosity. So... In Romans chapter 3, Paul will deal with a series of questions and answers. In our study, we will look at three of those questions and Paul's answers. The first question, what are the advantages of being a Jew or being circumcised in verses 1 and 2? The second question, will Israel's unfaithfulness somehow undermine God's faithfulness? The third question is, if our unrighteousness reveals God's righteousness, how is it fair to punish the sinner in verses five through eight? So Paul will argue against those who claim a racial advantage for those who claim a religious 
faithfulness, or we might even say unfaithfulness. And finally, Paul will overturn the ridiculous argument that if sin gives God an opportunity to demonstrate his goodness, then why not sin even more so that God can manifest his goodness? In essence, sin doesn't glorify a holy and a righteous and a perfect self-existent God. If that's the case, or if that were the case, we would have to abandon the Bible's doctrine of judgment and wrongdoing, and that the wrongdoer would go unpunished. So God would have to recuse himself as a righteous, impartial judge. And Paul's second answer in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, is short and penetrating. Paul ends the discussion with the statement, their condemnation is just. What does Paul mean? Their accusation is a slander against God, pure and simple. And they stand self-condemned because of the illogical nature of their charges. Their reasoning is like the person who prays for more crisis. They pray for more disaster, more tragedy, so that police and fire and paramedics would have the opportunity to display their skills and abilities. Are we thankful for fire police and paramedics and first responders? Are we thankful for their skill? Of course we are. But do we invite disaster so they can show off? No. Verse 1, the advantage of being a Jew. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Now remember Paul's audience. Paul's audience are Jews who have converted to Christ. Romans who have come to Christ. Jews and pagans who are investigating Christianity in Christ. Many of these people had varied backgrounds, and many Jews and pagans imagined themselves to be clothed in righteous garments that quite frankly, were non-existent. Some were deluded with false religious confidence. So what Paul does to his original reader, he does to us. He peels back the layers of religious affiliation and religious ritual. He strips away false confidence for those people who trust religion, who trust ritual, who trust affiliation or religious affiliation. Many of you are familiar with the story growing up as a kid of the emperor who had no clothes. You'll remember there was this emperor who wanted the finest garment available. And a bunch of hucksters came to him and said, we can create a garment that is so radiant and glorious that only the righteous and only the intellectually elite, only those people who are in the know will be able to see your garment. And of course, if you don't see the garment, that's indication that, well, you're an idiot or you're unrighteous or you're immoral. And so nobody wanted to be thought unrighteous, an idiot, immoral. And so they these hucksters had had spinning wheels. And you'll remember that they were spinning invisible thread, making an invisible garment. And he would call in the chief counselors and they would go, "Ooh, what a beautiful garment. Ooh, what a beautiful garment. And of course, the king, he doesn't want to be thought that he's an idiot or stupid. And so he puts on his invisible garment and there's a parade for him. And one little kid points to him and goes, oh, look, the king's naked. And everyone realized it was a sham. 
And that's often what it's like around religious people. It's a sham. There are seven specific items that are found in these eight verse verses. Number one, the people of God in verse one. Number two, the oracles of God in verse two. Number three, the faithfulness of God in verse three. Number four, the truthfulness of God in verse four. Number five, the righteousness of God in verse five. Number six, the judgment of God in verse six. And number seven, the glory of God in verses seven and eight. So we begin with the people of God. What are the advantage of being a Jew? The religious Jew who hears the gospel asks the question, if Paul is right, then what good or what advantage is there to being a Jew if I'm going to be judged just like the Gentile? What does it matter if I keep the feasts or the festivals, if like every Gentile, I have to come to Christ? What if what Paul is saying is true, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're religious or irreligious, no matter who you are, what does it mean if you come to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone? What are the benefits of being a Jew? Why even identify with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Remember, remember, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, the Jews had a glorious past. And the Bible promises them a glorious future. And so Paul writes in verse two, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Paul answers the question. The Jew has every advantage since they possess the word of God. As a matter of fact, when you look in verse two, when it says much in every way, chiefly, that word chiefly means first in order or first in significance. And it implies that I'm going to talk about an advantage and there are lots more, but he's going to begin with this advantage. This is at the top of the list of the advantages that are available because to them were committed the oracles of God. Again, it suggests other advantages. And Paul is going to return to those advantages in chapter nine, verses four and five. So the, the, the advantage list is going to increase. So you might even think that from here to chapter nine, it's a gigantic parenthetical note as he gets to point number two. However, we begin with the oracles of God. Paul argues much in every way. Paul has already proven that having God's word is not the same as believing it or trusting it or obeying it. And so for the person who says we have the Bible. We've already talked about does simply having a Bible mean that you're going to be saved? No. The oracles of God, by the way, are the revelation of God in the Bible. In those days, they didn't typically use the word Bible. We have a Bible. They use the term oracles because it implied speech and revelation. And the speech and revelation that's given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Bible and all that the Bible contains were the words of God and the will of God, and it revealed the character and the majesty of God. So an oracle was a message or a voice. 
And the Jews received the oracles of God and served as writers and keepers and custodians of the Holy Scriptures. And having the word of God is advantageous. Hearing the word of God, seeing the word of God. And the more you hear the word of God and you see the word of God and you embrace the word of God, it multiplies the advantages. Living in a society or an environment that has been informed by the word of God and then transformed by the word of God is an advantageous culture. And of course, there were many covenants of blessing. The Jews were given the advantage of bringing forth the Messiah. The Jews had the additional promises of God. The Jews had previews of the future. And yet, while having this great honor and privilege, it also brought with them an enormous responsibility. You all know what the scriptures say, to whom much is given, much is required. With honor and advantage comes accountability, especially when it comes to abuse and misuse. And so the person who has the advantages of living in a Christian home where the Bible is read and the Bible is loved and the Bible is honored and the Bible is obeyed eventually becomes without excuse if they fail to live for the for the Lord. And what about the Christian? Are there advantages to being a Christian? I'm going to suggest to you in every way. We also have a book. We have the oracles of God. We also are given a sneak peek into the future. And with these scriptures, Christians have laid the foundation of Western civilization and the roots of modern science. Yet there are still millions of people without the scripture. The best thing to do with the Bible is to know it in your head and stow it in your heart and sow it in the world and show it in life. But does that bring salvation? If you know it and you love it and you believe it. But what if you keep your Bible on the shelf? With all your other classics. What if you dust it off. At the wedding and the funeral. What if you grab a psalm here. And a verse there. What if you just read it. In the hopes that it's going to provide you comfort. But you are challenged to actually believe what it says. And so Paul writes in verse 3. For what if some did not believe. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So you can imagine the oracles of God were revealed to the Jew and to the Jew, as well as to everybody else. The revelation of God is made in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's two kinds of people, those who believe it and those who don't. And what happens if people don't believe it? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Weymouth translates this quote. What if some Jews proved unfaithful? Shall their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Here's what you have to understand. God promised the Jew a special place. True. God promised the Jews special privileges. True. Through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, 
through Joseph and Judah. Does this mean that the mere existence of rites and rituals that are revealed by God to the Jew, that embracing those rites and rituals obligate God to accept them? Well, Paul is going to argue, no. Some of the Jews proved unfaithful. They squandered their advantage. They squandered their privilege. And so here was the idea. Well, for the person who didn't believe and they squandered the advantages and the privileges, does that mean that God was going to set his word aside? Does that mean that he was going to set the promises aside? Does that mean that he was going to set the plan aside? When God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and David, was God going to fulfill the promise? Was a Messiah going to come in spite of rebellion, in spite of disobedience, in spite of unbelief? Is a real Jesus going to be really born? Yes. Is he going to live that perfect life? The answer is yes. Does unbelief of God's people... Thwart the promise of God, does it derail the plan of God in Christ? No. Imagine a person says, I know that the Bible says that Jesus is going to literally come back, but I don't believe that. Is their unbelief going to somehow make Jesus go, wow, those people down there don't even believe that I'm coming back. So, okay, plans off. See, you're laughing because of the ridiculousness of it. The stupidity of a group of people who believed that they could collectively come together and say, the Bible's not true. Oh, well, then it must not be true. The promises of God aren't real. Oh, well, the promises of God probably aren't real. Jesus isn't coming back. Well, then maybe Jesus isn't coming back. Here's the idea. Will the Jew find himself or herself on the right side of eternity simply on the basis of national heritage? Will the moral man find himself or herself on the right side of eternity on the basis of being moral? Will the religious person find himself or herself on the right side of eternity simply on the basis of their religion? Are the laws of life and eternity established by God? Or are they established by you and me and our thoughts, opinions and ideas? This is exactly what it means when Paul writes, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? No matter how much your husband or your wife protests, no matter how much your grandma or grandpa protests, no matter how much the government protests, no matter how much your children protest, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He is the Savior of all men. He is the person who has brought life and love, joy and regeneration. Does unbelief negate truth? No. Will unbelief make something ineffective and void? No. If there's one thing in the universe, if there's one thing in the universe that will remain constant and unchanging and unmoving, it's God's faithfulness to his promises. 
What he has said, he will do. What he has promised, he will fulfill. What he has ordered, he will execute. There are people listening to me right at this very moment who are saying, that's your viewpoint. And I'll say this. God doesn't have a point of view. God only has points to view. God sees up and he sees down and he sees left and he sees right. He sees the top and he sees the bottom. It is true. It is true that I don't know everything about everything. It is true that I don't have a perfect perspective. But God does. We can trust what he says. And so that goes to the truthfulness of God. Look at verse four. Paul writes, certainly not or God forbid. Let indeed let God be true. But every man a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul gives the answer. He says, no way, no way. The exact opposite is true. Rather, it reinforces and reveals God's faithfulness and holiness and righteousness and truth. And so when Paul writes, certainly not, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written. You should pay close attention to that expression. Do you want to know why? Paul has already used it in the past in the book of Romans. He will continue to to use it in the future in the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, the expression, it is written, it appears some 12 times in the book of, of Romans. Here's what it means. When it says it is written, it isn't just turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalm, chapter 51, verse 4. That's where he's quoting, by the way. He's not simply inviting the Roman audience to turn to the book of Psalms, turn to chapter 51 and verse 4. You know what he's inviting them to do? God has already revealed himself on this matter. And so when Paul uses the term, it is written, it implies, and it shall stand. I need to repeat that. When Paul writes, it is written or it is revealed in the Bible or God has already spoken on the subject. That should be sufficient for you. When God says something about a particular issue. It should end the discussion. Well, I wonder if it's okay to lie. I wonder if it's okay to cheat. I wonder if it's okay to steal. I wonder if sexual immoral behavior outside of marriage really is okay if the people really, 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 really love each other. When Paul says it's written, he means I've already I've already come to the conclusion about this issue. Why can't God just change the truth? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Well, why not? Why, why can't he just change the truth? Why doesn't God just choose to forgive sinners apart from the gospel and apart from Jesus Christ? If you're honest, you probably asked that question. Somebody has asked the question. Some friend or family member has said to you, why doesn't God just get over it and move on? I have. Think about the question. 
Don't just simply dismiss it on its face. Why doesn't God just choose to forgive sinners apart from the gospel and apart from Jesus? Why doesn't God just let it go? Why doesn't God just wink at sin and forget sin and pretend like it didn't happen? Like your mom and your dad used to do. And their mom and dad used to do. Why not just alter his word? Why not change his mind? About sin and its consequences. I know that at the very beginning he said in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. But why not just pretend like it never happened? I'm going to suggest to you because it would destroy the whole fabric of truth. And the character of God. God won't change the truth. Paul says, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. What does that mean? Does Paul suggest that God wants all human beings to serve as assassins of the truth? And so he'll tune in to television where the people are saying all kinds of weird and wicked things. I don't think that that's Paul's point. I think Paul's point is that human beings in their human thinking and human wisdom will prove to be false. And God will prove to be true. Humans do judge God, don't they? God, why did you do that? How dare you say that? God, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. I'm just looking for a place to hide. Excuse me. I'm afraid even when I repeat those words, thunder is going to ring from the heavens and split the top of the church. Human beings judge God to be either true or false. Yet in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 25, it says, for I'm the Lord. I will speak. And the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged for in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word and will perform it, saith the Lord God. God will accomplish all that he has said. He will fulfill all that he has done. If God has proved himself repeatedly, to be honest, If God has proven himself repeatedly to be true, if God has proven himself repeatedly to be thorough, precise, with integrity of character and nature, I'm going to suggest to you it makes perfect sense to trust him in the short view. And also in the long view, Blaise Pascal wrote, unless we love the truth, we cannot know it, unquote. Etienne Gilson wrote, it is not hard to find the truth. What is not what is hard is not to run away from it once you found it. And that's what happens to so many people. They run into a church and they run smack dab into the face of the truth. That human beings are sinners and they're in desperate need of a savior. And Jesus Christ is that savior. I received a note this week from a self-described atheist slash Satanist. 
I suspect he's going to be listening to this broadcast. He wrote in the note. He said he described himself. He had grown up in a Christian home, had Christian parents, was raised in a God honoring church. In the note, he described his attempt to live the lifestyle of a Christian. And in his words, he described the experience as his words, quote, boring and repulsive. I wrote back and I told him that the Christian lifestyle. Is boring and repulsive. If we attempt to live that life on our own resources and in our own strength and with a fallen mind and a fallen heart and a complete commitment to sin and rebellion. It makes perfect sense. I was there. People would talk to me about church. What do you guys do for fun? We go to church. Hold me back. What else do you do? We study the Bible. I'm on a roller coaster ride. I couldn't imagine anything more boring. But I can't even begin to tell you. Peace and joy can never be described as repulsive and boring. I wrote him back. I said to him that my worst day as a Christian is still better than my best day as an unbeliever. Because my best day as an unbeliever was filled with fear, panic. The uncertain dread that what if I drop dead in the middle of the night? You don't know how terrifying it was as a little kid to pray the prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die, what? I'm eight years old. If I die before I wake. This is terrifying. How do I know if I'll be good enough? How do I know? And so he writes about the advantage of sin. Look at the righteousness of God in verse five. He writes, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say is God unjust who inflicts wrath? He says, I speak as a man. I want you again to think about what you're reading. Think about the question. If our sin commends his righteousness, how can he judge us? Paul's critic accuses Paul of an absurd theology. If there's no difference between the righteous, think Jew, and sinners, think Gentile, any judgment must become meaningless, according to their way of thinking. Think about this for just a moment. What they're basically saying, well, gosh, if there's the Jews and the Gentiles, there's the righteous and the unrighteous. There's the believer and the unbeliever. If there are people who do religious things and people who don't do religious things. How are we to think about it? The righteousness of God stands in bold contrast to the record of the wicked and the evil. What will the perfections of God do? What will it do when you discover that God is perfect, that he is just, that he is loving, that he is kind, that he's filled with merciful, with mercy? 
Think about it for just a moment. For the religious person, they might think, well, this must mean God hates me. He hates my guts. Will his holiness make our unholiness and his righteousness make our unrighteousness the burning, the, the object of his burning wrath and awaken in God's heart a deep and a profound sense of justice? Will it make it impossible for God to do anything other than punish us? If that was the only thing we had to go on. Thank God we have so much more to go on. His love and his grace and his mercy and his purity. Does God's love and mercy and purity say something? Paul says, I speak as a man. Paul is in effect saying, look. Human being to human being. God is righteous. God is right. God's power and character attributes allow the universe to function in the way that it functions. You won't be able to divorce God's love and mercy and grace from his justice. In the Civil War, Lincoln was asked, do you think God is on our side? Lincoln's reply was shocking. After a thoughtful pause, Lincoln said, I don't know. I haven't even thought of that. What I'm really anxious to know is whether we are on God's side. What an interesting insight. Was well, God on my side? It depends. If you're on the side of Christ. Much of our religious efforts have been an effort to push God to our side, to coax God and compel God to adopt our standard of righteousness, our standard of purity, our standard of holiness, our standard of goodness, instead of going, Lord, I'm going to adopt your standard of righteousness and purity and holiness and goodness. And as I adopt your standard of righteousness, purity, holiness and goodness, I come to that discovery that apart from Christ and apart from his sacrifice and apart from his love and apart from the gospel, righteousness and purity and holiness and goodness become a pipe dream. And so he talks about the judgment of God. Look at verse six. He says, certainly not. Again, he's answering the question. If our righteous unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? In other words, does the Lord God who exercises justice, is he wrong in doing so? Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? The answer, we do not do evil that good may come of it. God judges the world in perfect righteousness. Again, look at how Paul answers the question or the suggestion that God might reconsider some of his laws. Rethink them through. Change them. I have a great idea. Let's just pretend like there's no such thing as judgment. I know you know people, and maybe you have even been that person. Wouldn't it be nice 
that there really was no judgment. That's the adoption of the world. That's what you see on TV as your loved ones enter into eternity and they go into an eternity apart from judgment, apart from Christ. Good people, bad people, right people, wrong people. Only the most, you know, you have to really be Hitler or a Republican to actually burn in hell. But everyone else is pretty much okay. But look at how Paul answers the question. Paul, in a literary sense, he throws up his hands and he cries, certainly not. Or God forbid, he's actually saying, I need you to banish that thought. I need you to not even go there. Remember the question, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Think it through. It is utterly impossible that God could look at sin and embrace sin and retain his divine integrity. That's what Paul is saying for every single person and every single television program and every single speech that says a real God won't really judge has never really read the Bible. Some were saying in Paul's day, well, look, God's pardon of man's sin. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. Hey, if God is willing to pardon sinners. Or those sinners who come to Christ. Why not just pardon every sinner? I mean, if it's glorious for sinners to be saved in Christ, wouldn't it be glorious if everybody was saved apart from Christ and the gospel? Paul is, in effect, saying, that's not going to happen. If God is going to remain God, If God's word is going to remain God's word. If the promises of God made perfect in Messiah, if the promises of God, as as God has said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one, no one, no one comes to the father except by me. Paul is in effect saying, look. If God is going to remain God, God can't overlook A religious man's sin simply because he's religious. God cannot overlook a moral man's sin simply because he's moral in order to be consistent with his character and his word. And since his character and his word are revealed in the oracles of God because they are preserved and kept and because they are available to us, we can evaluate all that we say and we do in light of what is written. And so the glory of God is is brought out for in verse seven, for it says, for if the truth of God is, has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported. And as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Paul gives voice to the religious person's objection. If my sin brings glory to God, if my lie vindicates his truth, if he causes man's wrath to praise him, then how can he consistently find fault with me as a sinner? 
So some charge that Paul was teaching license. That sin actually brings honor and glory to God. And Paul condemns that nonsense. Sin is sin. And sin's nature doesn't change. And here's what he's arguing. You can't generate goodness by celebrating wickedness. Does war sometimes result in peace? Yeah. But make no mistake about it. People get hurt along the way. A fortune built on lies and dishonesty. Can it bring about a family's peace and happiness and security? Maybe momentarily, but not forever, huh? In other words, if you become wealthy by lying and cheating and stealing, will your wealth still be wealth? Yeah. But will it catch up with you? Is God mocked? What you sow, will you eventually reap it? And so here's the idea. A life built on half lies and even whole lies won't stand the test of time. Real Christian peace and holiness cannot be divorced from grace and truth. There are still people who make this argument. Some people suggest, well, look, okay, okay. If you're really saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, why not just go out and do whatever you want, sin as much as you like, since God's grace superabounds over man's sin, and the more you sin, the more grace abounds. And Paul is going to address that very issue in Romans chapter 6. I know what you're thinking. I want you to address it now. I'll give you the short version. In short, we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin. It's not enough to know our new position in Christ. We must, by faith, reckon it to be true in our individual lives. Reckoning is the step of faith that says what the Bible says about me in my life is true. And so Paul says, does this give me an excuse to sin? Paul writes, no, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not me who live, but it's Christ who lives with me. Paul reckons and he says, you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, I died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, my wickedness died on the cross. Reckoning is faith in action, resting on God's word in spite of the circumstances or feelings. God doesn't tell us to crucify ourselves, but rather to believe that we've already been put to death. Here's the deal. No one ever committed suicide on a cross. There's a lot of ways to kill yourself. Crucifixion isn't one of them. You have to have a willing partner. You have to lay down. And somebody else has to place the nail in your hands. And somebody else has to place the nails in your feet. Reckoning is that step of faith that believes God's word. If a believer truly reckons himself to be dead to sin, then they can prove their faith by yielding themselves to God. And so the person who reckons himself or herself dead and then yields to God and says, I am now free not to sin, not to embrace sin, but to reject it. So what is the secret of Christian living? You notice I didn't ask you. What's the secret of escaping 
judgment. We could ask that question, but that's the low view for the person who says, look, how do I avoid judgment? I think that there's a better question. I think that there's a better way. It's obedience to God as an act of faith. All harmony and order in the natural world, in the supernatural world, comes when we embrace Jesus, fruitful obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience isn't just the mark of a slave, but the mark of the master and the leader. Paul is going to reveal something. Obedience is the way to power. In health, it's obedience to the laws of the physical world. In the spiritual world, it's obedience to the laws of the spirit. You see, if you know the will of God, then you can embrace it and submit to it. The follower will become the leader and the bond slave will become the master. How? By doing exactly what the master did. Listen to the father and then do what the father does. So what is Paul's point? Argument can't save you. Legalism can't save you. License can't save you. Many well-meaning Christians want to keep the law and many well-meaning Christians want to impose law on other Christians. Their argument is if you don't teach people moral restraint and keeping the law, then they're going to run around like sailors on shore leave. But the very Jews who rejected Jesus continued to accept the law and religious ritual. Because there is a group of people who say, I'm happy to go to church. I'm happy to have a Bible. I'm happy to do religious things, even with religious people. But I'm not coming to Christ. Many are cold. And a few are frozen. Mark Twain put it this way. Having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with the tax collector and the sinner. (laughs) Boring. And repulsive. Unless something happens inside of you. Unless a fundamental change takes place on the inside. Or you understand what it means to have hope. To have love. To have grace. To have mercy. You see, there's no refuge really in religion. There's not even refuge in morality. The only refuge, the only safe refuge is Jesus himself. And so that's why we encourage you to do exactly that. Come to Jesus. Embrace Jesus. Love him. Accept him. Walk with him. Allow him to inform your thinking and your living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Again, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. And we thank you that you've given us a way of escape. It's Jesus. But there's something way more important than just simply escaping judgment. It's living life. It's loving life. It's loving the life that you've given us. A life marked by peace and joy. Of love and connection. Of reality and purpose. Of grace and direction. And so, Father, again, I pray for that person. There's still a dark spot, an empty spot, a fearful spot, a terrifying spot in their heart. Lord, I pray that you would fill their heart with love, confidence in Jesus, trust in Jesus, the grace and the mercy of Jesus. We trust you today for our life and for our future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.